Let me pray again for just a second. Lord, we come before you this morning as those who have been washed in the blood of your Son. That's our entry into your presence. Lord, we thank you that you've stamped us, given us your spirit so that we can understand the things that are true and the things specifically about you. Lord, we submit ourselves to you now as we look at your word together and ask that your spirit would have your way with us. Lord, open our eyes to see the things each one of us needs to see. Thanks that you're a loving father and a devoted savior. We count on you now in Jesus' name. Amen. I've mentioned before that the average age at which folks are getting married today is a lot higher than it used to be. When Kathy and I got married a few decades back, it was 23 and 22 for guys and gals. And today it's 29 and 28 for guys and gals. And you know, the truth is most of the career-aged adults that you know, probably like me, they don't want to stay career adults unmarried. They want to be married. And this has spawned, of course, a huge industry of trying to connect adult singles with each other. So if you go online, especially I'm thinking of online dating services. So these were ones I'd never heard of before. Uh, date hookup is one. Plenty of fish. Mike, there's plenty of fish in the sea. Another one is uh, OK Cupid. I never heard of these, but if you do a search, they'll come up. You know, better, better known ones are Match.com eHarmony also, if you go to one of these sites, you know, it's the process where you are entering this data, personal data about yourself, and other people are doing the same thing, and it's the attempt to hook up with people who are similar, have similar likes or dislikes, passions, backgrounds, whatever. And you know, in this whole, whole arena of trying to make relationships with others, it's kind of treacherous water. You know, even if you go through the, the grid of answering the surveys and someone else has done the same, you can still end up meeting people that you say, I have absolutely no, no desire to have a relationship with this person or this was a disaster. But it's kind of the dating game. It's a challenge. The Apostle Paul found himself in a relationship in which he was trying to sell himself to the Corinthian church. And this was unusual because this was the church he had started. But there's other suitors for their attention. There's other guys competing for the Corinthians' attention. And Paul's got to sell himself again to this group of Christians so that they'll listen to him. Because Paul really does have their best in mind. And the other guys who are taking up their time and attention really don't. And Paul really represents Christ and others that they're paying attention to and listening to really don't. And these are treacherous waters, whether you're thinking of a career singles dating situation or whether you think of the spiritual milieu that Paul found himself in with the Corinthian church. Before we get into 2 Corinthians 6, if you remember last week in chapter 5 primarily, we talked about a great exchange in which Christ, the innocent one, took our penalty in his death on the cross. And then part of the implication was, as those who have been redeemed by Christ, Paul said he was an ambassador for Christ. And we, like Paul, are called to be ambassadors also. And that's what we highlighted. This morning, Paul keeps going with this ambassador theme. He's selling himself to the Corinthians. Listen to me as he continues with his ambassador theme. If you have a study sheet, we'll read there. This is a lengthy passage, by the way. I'm trying my best in going through a book of the Bible to get through a book of the Bible in a single year. 
And so we're taking off big chunks in 2 Corinthians, much bigger than I usually do. So we're covering a lot of ground this morning and we're really skimming the surface. There's a ton of things we could get into that we won't, but we'll try and do some honest case of making a a case for the three key points here this morning. So 2 Corinthians 6 verse 3 through chapter 7 verse 4, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Paul says, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry or his presentation of the gospel will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God Now he starts through a litany, a list of the ways in which he's commending himself as a servant of God. He says, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings I commend myself, he says, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. I commend myself, he says, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, he says, I commend myself, by evil report and good report, when regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying, yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, commending ourselves when we're poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Our mouth, he says, has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in like exchange I speak as to children, open wide to us also in that relationship. Changing gears, he says at 14, don't be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? A word there that means worthless, used only here in the New Testament of Satan, apparently. What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. And he goes into a several, actually, Old Testament quotes here. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, Paul says, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I don't speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. So look back at verse 3 for just a second. Paul says, we don't give offense in anything and we do commend ourselves in everything. He's not saying here that he never gives offense, 
But in any way that he can avoid doing so, he's never giving offense. Don't give offense in anything. This is total. And he says, we do commend ourselves in everything. No matter what's going on, Paul says in his life, his goal is to commend himself to others as Christ's ambassador. This is that ambassador theme continuing. So he says, as he sees his life, no matter what situation he finds himself in, what accusation he's faced with, whether times are good or bad for Paul, he says, in every one of these situations, I'm attempting to commend myself to others so they'll be receptive to what I have to say about Christ. And look back through this list briefly. This would be a study in itself. We're not doing that, but we'll run through these quickly. There's 28 examples Paul gives. 28, it seems like overkill to me, but his point is, no matter what's going on, this is my goal, to commend myself to others for Christ's sake. So sort, these sort of break down into four categories. The first one would be, in difficult circumstances, Paul says. I'm not whining, I'm not feeling sorry for myself, it's not all about me. I'm actually trying, in the midst of difficult circumstances, to commend myself to others. So he says, in much endurance in affliction, when I'm feeling pressed down, in hardships, in distresses, when I'm being beaten. Think about that. I'm trying to commend myself while they're beating me, he says. In imprisonments, when I'm imprisoned unjustly, I'm trying to commend myself to others for Christ. Think about Paul in Philippi in the jail, singing psalms at night and seeing the jailer come to Christ because this is where his head's at. In tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. When times are hard, Paul says, no matter how hard, I'm still thinking, Lord, how can I commend myself to others so they'll listen to the gospel, the message about Christ? He switches gears in the next set. He says, sort of related to his assets. What does Paul bring to the table apart from the situations? So there he says, in my purity. Do we commend ourselves as servants of Christ in purity? That's a challenging phrase. Paul says, my commitment to purity is because I want to represent Christ. In my knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, not feigned love. In Paul commending himself, there's nothing feigned about it. It's all genuine. It's real. In the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. That is, those sort of assets, spiritual or otherwise, that I'm bringing with me. By each of those, I'm commending myself to others for Christ's sake as his ambassador. This is a difficult set. The next one, when he's understood by others and when he's misunderstood. Guys, are we willing to do something in Christ's name when we know we'll be misunderstood by others for doing it? This is a challenge. And if you haven't felt this challenge yet, you will. And I've been around this block so many times that I no longer try and make sure people understand me or my motive because it's impossible. And Paul, this guy, exemplary life, commended by Christ, Paul is misunderstood by others all the time. And you remember back a chapter, he said, everything I do, I do for the sake of standing before the judgment seat of Christ and Christ will weigh the things I've done. And in Christ's presence and before all others, my motives will become clear. I won't be misunderstood anymore. But as long as we're in this life, on this world, you will be misunderstood by others. Even when, as far as you're concerned, your motives are pure and right, 
And people will still say, man, what a wretch. Why is he doing that? Why did she say that? They are so out of line. They so don't get me. Deal with it. Paul dealt with it. So he says, by glory and dishonor. When I've been dishonored by others, I'm trying to commend myself for Christ's name and for their sake. By evil report and good report, when people speak well of me or when people speak ill of me, my goal is still the same. I'm commending myself as Christ's ambassador. As deceivers and yet true. As unknown and yet well known. Who is this Paul? You remember in Acts 17 on Mars Hill? Who is this babbler? Who is this guy with strange things to say? Who is this guy? In and out of the church. He says, regardless of all those things, I'm commending myself as Christ's ambassador. And then last, into his personal experiences, he says, when I'm dying and yet alive, I'm commending myself to Christ. This may refer, you remember Paul stoned in in the stories in Acts? He's stoned and he's left for dead. Many commentators think he died when he was stoned. And that when Paul talks about going to heaven in this book, in the 12th chapter, many people think that's when he died and went to heaven. And if you read the story in Acts, he gets up like nothing has happened. And he goes about his way. But the people who threw rocks at him, they'd probably done this before. And they thought the guy was dead. And he gets up and walks away. So he says, I'm commending myself as dying and yet alive. As punished, Paul was was punished repeatedly, yet uh, not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. So you read Paul's story, you read his life, you read the story in Acts, he's got this singular focus. And I think it's one of the reasons why Paul is one of those lives when you think about what he accomplished in a few decades in his time on the earth, really the expansion of the church through all of the West was primarily from the Apostle Paul. That's all he did. He just started the church in the West that spread throughout the rest of Europe and has come down to us today. That's all he did in a few decades. And part of it was because he was singular in his focus. He says, there's just one thing I'm, I'm concerned about. You remember back in Philippians when Paul says, I'm doing one thing with my life. I forget what lies behind. The past is behind me. And I reach forward to what lies ahead. He had a singularity to his vision that allowed him to do one thing. And all he wanted to do, he says over and over again, I want to know Christ and I want to make Christ known to others. And so he brings this very singular focus to his life. So he says, no matter what's going on in my life, my purpose is to respond in such a way that people will understand I'm Christ's representative so they can believe the truth about Jesus. That's the deal. Does this sound like your life? Does this sound like my life? I hope you feel half as convicted as I do. You know, times get a little hard. <laughs> it's so unfair, Lord. They don't understand me. You know, my life's in the pit. I'm jailed again. I'm beaten again. Hard times, whatever. You know, Paul just keeps going. You know, the energized bunny, he just keeps up, gets up, keeps going. And he says, I'm just focused on this one thing. That simplifies our life. If we can let go of everything else, our reputation, that's a hard thing to do. If we can let go of that, you can focus on the one thing God wants in your life. He wants you to be in this close, intimate, vital relationship with him. And he wants you to share that with others. 
He wants you in his family. He wants that close relationship. And he wants us to call others into that same relationship with him. So Paul says, that's what my life's about, no matter what's going on. If you told someone in your life now that doesn't know you well that you're a Christian, would they be surprised? Would they be surprised by the way you act in life? Or by what they know about you, would they be surprised if you say, I am a Christian and I'm inviting you to know Christ and be like me? Would that be a good thing to the people that know you but don't know yet you're a Christian? I knew a guy many years ago, I worked with him for months. He had a really foul mouth. He was sort of a nice, nice guy. And he told me one day, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm <laughs> like, wow, really? And it wasn't that I doubted him. It's just that when he told me, I would have had no idea because of the way he interacted with other people and the words out of his mouth. There was absolutely no commending himself to others for Christ's sake. But he, he told me later, I'm a Christian. If you tell someone you know you're a Christian, would they find that hard to believe? Or would they want what you have to share based on what they've seen in your life? Do you and I commend ourselves as representatives of Christ by the way we're responding in life? The way we drive on the streets. The way we stand in lines or butt in lines at the grocery store or wherever. You know, when your life's going well or where, when it's in the pits, can you say, I'm trusting Christ for this and I'm choosing to respond in a way that I can still share Christ with others and they would find the message receivable because I haven't acted in such a way that they'd say, who is this guy and who would want what he has to share anyway? Paul says, all of my life, it's to commend myself so others will accept Christ. You look at verses 11 through 13 in chapter 6 and then 2 through 4 in chapter 7. Paul says, uh, open to us. Verse 13, open wide to us. Verse 2 in chapter 7, make room for us. He's sort of saying, ladies, I'm your man, so to speak. Spiritually speaking, thinking about the dating scene broadly framed this morning. Ladies, I'm your man. I don't know if you guys have seen the same thing. I think it's fairly common uh, a beautiful, attractive, physically physically attractive woman, uh, intelligent, looks successful, going with a guy that you'd say, what in the world is she doing with that guy? You know, a guy that you might say, what a jerk. I know this guy. Why would she be with him? What, what does she see in him? Do you guys, have you seen the same thing? Is it just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and typically what you've got is uh, probably a person, a guy, this is just thinking of guys towards gals at this point, thinking of a guy who's shown attention to a gal. He's complimented her. He, he's just gone up and introduced him. He was willing to speak up. A lot of nice guys are bashful, fearful, socially backward, inept maybe, uh, and uh, maybe less, less likely on the front end of things to impress a gal. So if a guy, he can be a real creep, but if he just goes up to a gal and is complimentary and goes up to, and just shows her some attention, oftentimes that's all it takes. But if you know that guy and you see that gal, you're thinking, what in the world is she thinking? Why would she hook up with that guy? 
And that's exactly what's going on for Paul in this letter and in this church. These Corinthian Christians, they are accepting as their mentors and as their leaders these boyfriends who are abusive boyfriends. You get later into chapter 11 and you see this. These guys that the Corinthian Christians are listening to and following and thinking highly of, they're creeps and they're jerks and they're abusive, such that Paul says in chapter 11, if they slap you, they're abusive. If they slap you, you receive it well. You know, not only when they present a different gospel, a different Jesus, a different view of life that's not Christian, but they're abusive to you as leaders. And he says, you bear it beautifully. And it's like the gal with this guy and you're saying, what gives? What is the deal? Why, what do you see in them? Why would you follow those men? What gives? Paul says, open wide to us, receive us because we're the real deal. Paul's the one that's brought them to the dance, to the prom. And they've left him in the corner and Paul's in the corner saying, guys, remember me? Gals, remember me? I'm the one who brought you here. And they're dancing with these other gals and he's trying to cut in and he's having a hard time doing it. Because they value these other leaders that Paul says, you shouldn't. We're the real deal. You should be listening to us. Now, this, this cuts across all kinds of things. And, and literally, if you're a young, specifically career-aged young lady or a young man, I was thinking specifically of young ladies when I started this. Maybe that's because I have four daughters. I don't know. But... If you're at that stage of life when you're thinking, I really want to get married, what kind of a spouse, what kind of a man, gentleman, or what kind of a young lady are you thinking about? You know, and what are you willing to settle for? Are you willing to hold out for the Pauls in life? The, the guys that will treat you right, respectably, with esteem, and speak well of you, to you, and about you. Or, or on the other shoe, guys, gals that, that have your best in mind. You know, just related to the real dating scene, you know, the, the desire for adults to get married. It's a God-given desire. This is Genesis. This is the creation account. It's not good for the man to be alone. We all feel that. Very few people I've ever met in life said, I've been called to be single. In fact, I'm not sure I've met maybe one, maybe two. So we're looking for a spouse, that's a good thing, but oftentimes, especially as the years go by, we feel like we're, we're willing to settle for less because getting married is the thing, and, and it's not. And you need to listen to Paul's words here. What kind of a person are you looking for? Someone who will be respectful of you, who has your best in mind, someone who helps you become your better self, that's what and who you should be looking for, holding out for. And rejecting the jerks, the lousy guys who will come up and say something to get your attention, but aren't good men or aren't good women. Be willing to hold out. Um, related to the church, too, this is a theme that I'll bring up again here in just a minute, but if you find yourself in the place where you need to find a local church, you need to ask yourself, what are the leaders of that church like? This 2 Corinthians letter has a whole lot to do with church leadership because Paul's, Paul's going through the whole letter commending himself as a Christ-like leader through the whole epistle in contrast to men in the church who aren't. 
So if you need to find a local church, you need to ask yourself, what is leadership there like? Are they like Paul? Do they have my best in mind? Are they servant leaders? And when you look in the Old Testament or the New, this is consistent throughout. Christ's leaders are called as servant leaders. So if you go to a church and you feel like these guys, it's about them. It's about their reputation. It's about how they feel about things. It's church building. I was online this morning trying to locate a particular church. There was one review on the church. And it said, this is like a country club. They give you a visitor sheet. They tell you, we want you in here. And they don't care otherwise about you at all. They're trying to build numbers and volume and money. If you go to a church, what are the church leaders like? Are they like Paul? Paul's like Christ. Are they like Paul? Are they servant leaders? Do they have your best in mind? Are they humble? Also, do they teach the truth? You know, we're in a day in which so much is considered relative, even from the pages of the Bible. Do they preach the Jesus Paul preached? And is the truth of the gospel in the scriptures, is that their touchstone? But if you need to find a local church, you need to find leaders like Paul. Leaders like Paul. And young guys and gals, and here I'm speaking to college age and down, you know, everybody's built in with a need to be known and approved. In fact, I would argue it's our most basic need before food and other kinds of security. Because we're born sinful, we know we're deficient. And so our overarching need whether we are conscious of it or not, is for someone else to say, I know you and I love you and accept you as you are. That's our need. I know you and I accept you. Both are necessary. If I know you but I don't love you, it's meaningless. I'm, I'm not accepted. If I accept you but I don't know you, I'm afraid you'll find out what a creep I am and then you won't love me anymore. But if I'm known and loved, oh, that's heaven. And by the way, that is heaven. That's what we're after. So when we hit adolescence especially, we start looking for peers who will give us what ultimately only Christ can, a full knowledge of who and what we are really like and full acceptance. And so when we're looking for friends, when we're looking for that kind of affirmation, a lot of times we're looking for it any way we can get it. And so we'll look for friends who will simply give us some sense of I'm okay. And it's just, it's too short a measuring stick to measure friends by. And by the way, uh, be the kind of friend others need. Look for the kind of friends that are like Paul. So when you're looking at friends, ask yourself, are the friends like Paul in the sense that they have my back? They have my best in mind. They invite me to share in the things they're doing with others. They include me because they care about me. Or... When I'm with those friends, I become more the person in Christ I'm meant to be. Does that happen with the friends I connect with? So as you're thinking through those relationships, what is the impact of the people we're choosing to go to the prom with? What is that impact on us? Is it positive? Are they abusive? Do I become more the person in Christ I'm meant to be or less because of the leaders I'm hanging out with, the gals or guys I'm pursuing, the friends I'm pursuing, the church I'm in? What's the fruit of that association? What's that look like? Be careful in choosing your dates. 
The last point, and like the others, we could spend a whole bunch of time on this, and we're giving it short shrift this morning. Uh, Verse 14 through verse 1 of chapter 7 seem to be out of place. And I don't know if you notice that when you read through. They seem out of place. This theme about come out from among them, be separate, I'll be your God, I'll be your Father. Do you know that if if you excise these verses... This passage would read through seamlessly with Paul's committing himself and then talking about uh, the way he's an ambassador open wide to us. It'd read through seamlessly. So when you get to this passage, it's like, Lord, what what are you trying to say? Why is this here? Commentators, frankly, divide on what to make of this passage. Why is it here? What's Paul referring to? There's probably two points, um, depending on who you read on this, they'll say yes or no to one or both. There's probably two points here. The first is this. Paul, throughout this letter, is comparing himself to other Christian leaders in this church. And so one, one point of application probably has to do with other leaders in the Corinthian church. The fact, though, that the passage speaks beyond anything that could be tied to Jewish false apostles means there's got to be more to it than that. And the second thought is this. Paul brings up a subject sort of for dramatic effect out of the blue that he has not been talking about in this epistle for these opening chapters. But it is a theme that he dealt with at length in the first chapter. So we'll look at both of these. Paul says in verse 14, don't be bound together, or if you're a King James fan, maybe more memorable or visual, don't be unequally yoked. Well-known phrase, don't be unequally yoked. Christians use this phrase a lot. This comes from the Greek heterozugeo. Hetero means another or a different kind or a different type. And zugeo means to be yoked or bound or committed to someone, something else. So if you go back in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, in Leviticus 19.19, the Jews were told this, You are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of cattle. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. In the law, when God hooks up with Israel as a nation, God says, guys, I'm holy. That means I'm singular in my uniqueness, and you're called to be like me, singular, holy, set apart just for me. And so God had built into the law all these ways in which the Jews were supposed to display a singularness in their life, a holiness in their life, even to the way they farmed or sowed their fields. And it's the same word there, that you wouldn't put different kinds of animals together, different breeds of cattle you wouldn't put together. A thing was what it was supposed to be, no more no less. It was a wheat field or it was a barley field. It was a donkey or it was an ox. We weren't blending these things together. And so Paul says that same thing to this group. Don't be bound up, don't be committed to, don't be tied up together with someone else or something else that is not like you, that doesn't share your holiness to God. That's the thought. That's the theme. So Paul says, verse 14, don't tie yourself up with, don't be yoked with 
unbelievers or non-Christians in verse 14. He says the same thing about the lawless. These would be people who just live life as they see fit. They're a law to themselves. I do as I please. Uh, Those committed to spiritual darkness, not just those in darkness, those committed to darkness. In verse 15, he says those committed to Belial or false gods. Unbelievers, he mentions again, verse 16, idols, verse 17, anything that's morally unclean. Again, to a number, there's seven prohibitions here. And of course, in the scripture, seven is a complete number. It represents completion. And so Paul seems to be saying, in anything, in any way, in every way that something can render you less than God's called you to be, do not be bound up with that person, place, thing, or activity. Whatever it is, anything or everything. So Paul says, as an ambassador, I commend myself in every conceivable occurrence in life. He says to them, in every conceivable way you can think of, be free to be who God's called you to be, holy to God, Christ-like, Christ's ambassadors. Nothing that reduces you, that pulls you down away from who and what God's called you to be. You remember when we talked about having Christ's righteousness, that means God saying you are what you were meant to be. And so Paul says, disassociate with anything that makes you less than God's called you to be. So in Paul's day, Corinth was a lot like the pagan world that the Jews in the Old Testament grew up in. In Paul's day, these guys, these Christians, they really had come from pagan worship. So there were temples around to all kinds of gods. And their lives were, they were tied into this. This was bound up in everything they did. You know, in Paul's day, if you wanted to throw a party, you went to the temple. Just like the Jews would do in Jerusalem. You went to a pagan temple, you threw a party, you got drunk. By the way, that's where you had sex. Immorality was all tied up in the pagan worship. That was part and parcel of it which is why it was such a big deal in both Old and New Testaments. So in Paul's day, he really is saying, come out from this lifestyle you've had in the past, your partying scene, temple life, and prostitution and immorality and drunkenness and gluttony and excess. That's what was going on there. He says, you've got to get away from all of that. You've got to come out of that lifestyle. Because until you do, you are less than I called you to be. You're not holy the way I want you to be. Uh, When I was growing up, before I became a Christian, I was a party animal. And uh, a debauched life. That was just, that was uh, life I considered a good life. It was the party scene. And when I became a Christian, uh, leaving that behind was was a, a challenge. I mean, it was a real challenge. Elements of that lifestyle clung to me for some time. And I had to pray and I talked with other guys about it. It was hard to come out. Paul would have been saying to me, just like he was to them, you've got to leave that stuff behind because it's rendering you less than God wants you to be. Those old ways of life. So when you think of being unequally yoked, we routinely think about things like marriage, and that's good. You know, I'm not going to commit my life to a person who's not like me, who's not going the same place I'm going, who's not committed to Christ the way I am because they'll render me less than Christ has called me to be. And I won't be able to commend myself to others in an appeal for Christ 
if I'm hooked up in this old relationship or in this activity or whatever it is. For us today, this might be, depending on where you live and when you live, it might be a bar scene, might be a dance scene. I think that's probably less so here than in some of the larger cities. Um, but anything you look at in your life, don't, don't make it narrow, make it broad. <clears throat> because it really has to do with that thing of, what am I tied to in my life emotionally, in some kind of commitment with my time, with my energies, what am I tied to, bound up with, who, what, where, that renders me less than Christ meant me to be? That's what I have to get away from, Paul says. I am totally lost on where I'm supposed to be, guys. Let's see. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, churches, too. This is more and more an issue. If you move to another city and you're looking for a church, you've really got, you've got to be careful, don't you? If you've got to find a local church, because there is everything and, every, and anything under the sun that goes by the name Christian today. And there are lots of thriving big churches. And by the way, I have nothing against big churches. There's a lot of great churches that are big. I have nothing against size. But a lot of churches are just like these guys in Corinth. They're not talking about Christ. They're in it for themselves. You need to be careful, really, of the church you go to, spiritually. Where are they going? Where are they taking you? And then secondarily also, anything you look at in your life, this probably for most of us is most important or has most application when we become a Christian and we're trying to figure out what does this new lifestyle look like. There's probably more for us to get away from at that point. But this could be true of any of us at any time. Let me, let me close too with this, what this does not mean. It's easy for us uh, to be self-congratulatory. We're Christians, we know who we are, we know where we're going, and I'm better than those guys down the block. Do you know what I mean? The holier-than-thou mentality. Uh, Paul is not saying anything about that here. In fact, if you remember, when we talked about being ambassadors for Christ, that's our call. So Paul, in his talk here about not being unequally yoked, he's not saying leave the world. And he's not saying don't hang out with unbelievers. He's saying don't be yoked to them in a way that compromises you. But in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's talked to the Corinthians already. He said, it's fine for you to hang out with unbelievers. It's fine for you, by the way, to eat the meat that's been sacrificed in pagan temples. Not a problem. There's only one God, Paul says. He does say there, by the way, don't go to the pagan temples. Don't participate in pagan worship. But he's not saying avoid pagans, avoid unbelievers. That's not the point at all. You know, you look at Jesus in the Gospels. He's falsely accused of being sinful. Why? Because he's sitting down with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners. And he says, gosh, that's why I'm here. I've come to call not the righteous, but the unrighteous to repentance and to life. And that's our mold. And that's what Paul did too. So don't confuse this call with separation where we get to know God more fully and we develop this intimate, full, joyful relationship with Christ, don't confuse that with a kind of religious hypocrisy that has nothing to do with what our call is. We're to be engaged in the world, commending ourselves to the people around us so that we can talk to folks who don't know about Christ, about Christ, that's our call. And you know, think of this too, last point. 
If you as a Christian, you're saved, you know that, Christ is your Savior, you're going to heaven when you die. If you say to yourself, I don't feel very joyful, I don't feel like I have a lot of peace, I don't feel like I'm very vital, I don't feel like I share the gospel very well or regularly, ask yourself, have I come out emotionally, mentally, my time or my energies from things that pull me down? Do you know what I mean? If I'm not feeling the love, you know, Jesus, our suitor, has wooed us. We're called later in this same, the bride of Christ. We're the engaged woman waiting for this great celebration to come. And all of life, life in its fullness is to know Christ. So as Christians, if we're not feeling the love, what, what is in us? What's going on in us that's restrained it? Because we should have it. We should have that abundance of joy because that's what Christ gives us. So if we don't, it's a good time to ask the question, Lord, am I still tied up? Am I still bound up with people or places or things or activities or simply ways of thought that are keeping me from knowing you fully, God, as my Father? That's in the text here. Or Christ as my life, not just my Savior, but my source of joy like Paul knew it. You know, Paul went through hell and high water. I mean, that list, you know, he goes through lists again and again. Life was not easy for Paul, but life was rich and full. And this guy says, I am filled with joy because he knew Christ. He'd left the old behind. He'd embraced the new. So these are huge topics. What kind of people are we following? Who are our friends? What are the church leaders like we're following? What am I willing to settle for in a spouse or a friend? Am I leaving behind the old things, the old ways, so that I can get on with who I'm called to be and what I'm called to do? So, who's taking us to the prom? Who's your date? Father, thanks that you love us uh, so fully and perfectly as only you could. And Lord, it was out of that love that Jesus came and died for our sins, became our great exchange, exchanger, or took our guilt upon himself so that we could be free. Lord God, help us to take an inventory, an honest inventory, of the people or the places or the events in life that may be holding our hearts and holding us back from knowing you fully as our Father or Christ as our Savior and as the source of joy and life in our life. Lord, help us to take on more the mantle and the mentality of Paul to intentionally, single-mindedly, in a holy manner to commend ourselves to others by the way we live and commend ourselves to you as well, Lord, and looking forward to that day, that great marriage feast when we see you face-to-face, Lord, and join you forever. Help us to live in anticipation of that day. In Jesus' name, amen.